Sandra. I'm Neil. And we'd like to welcome you to our podcast, Dubious. This is the place where you'll be hearing about weird, crazy, extraordinary, and sometimes inexplicable events. I don't know. It's <laughs> like a, I mean, there's a Yeti here, there's some KGB guys, there's a nuclear bomber. That's all pretty normal. <laughs> it's not too extraordinary. You know, that sort of thing happens all the time. Do you think we should tell them how many times you tried to do the intro? We should put like three seconds of every one. <laughs> and then we're going to have a dog bark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a dog bark. But no, the the other intros that we recorded and they were so good, those I deleted by mistake. <sighs> Stop sighing. first episode, we're talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. This was a group of Soviet hikers that uh, disappeared back in the late 1950s and were later found dead. And uh, it's kind of been a big deal in uh, in Russian true crime lore over the past few decades. And we think we have found a new theory about what happened to these people that involves the U.S. military and the CIA and spy aircraft flying over the Soviet Union. And after checking declassified documents and books uh, from the DOD and the CIA in preparation for this episode, I got to say, it makes a lot of sense. So we think we figured this one out and Sandra's going to get into the background. In January 1959, at the height of the Cold War, nine experienced Soviet hikers, led by their friend and colleague Igor Dyatlov, went on an expedition in the Ural Mountains. Only one person survived. His friends were later found dead, some of them with horrific injuries, uh, missing eyeballs, missing tongue, no eyebrows, massive skull fractures and rib fractures, but no damage to the soft tissue. And some of their clothing items had super high levels of radiation. Now, there are many theories about what could have caused their deaths. Slab avalanche, catabatic winds, escaped convicts from the gulag, yeti, (laughs) you know... (laughs) Um, secret secret weapons testing. Um, some say that the local indigenous people called the Mansi killed them, which I think is bullshit. Leave the indigenous people alone. Like, you can always blame the locals. That's, exactly. You know, like, that's like that's like straight out of the uh, the FBI, CIA, KGB shared playbook. Is you mean like just blame the locals? You mean yeah, like the, you mean the white the the old white dudes, right? Yeah, exactly. There's 60 years worth of theories about what happened to these people. A more plausible explanation when we go through all this and uh, we lay out all the evidence we have from not just the Soviet side of this investigation, but from declassified U.S. military documents and CIA documents as well about what was going on in this area. It's plausible that these people just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the Cold War literally dropped on their heads in the middle of the night. And also, when you said they were at the wrong place at the wrong time, I mean, they were aiming to get to a Thornton Mountain, which is called, don't go there in Mansi, that's what it means, don't go there. And then their tent was placed on the uh, eastern slope of Kolatsiaklu Mountain, which means dead mountain in Mansi. So I'm like, really there? I mean, (laughs) you know. (laughs) If there is a Yeti, he lives between don't go there and death mountain. If you would invite me to go with you on a hike to the dead mountain in the don't go there or Thornton Peak area. Yeah, we're going to don't go there tomorrow, (laughs) by the way. Yeah. Are the dogs coming? Yes, the Yeti. Dogs have got to be there to bark. (laughs) Okay. Now, let's forget about the Yeti for just a second. And uh, I want to point out that the authorities knew exactly where the hikers were going and when they were going to be there, um, what uh, their itinerary was exactly. Actually, at the time in the Soviet Union, you couldn't do really anything unless the party approved of it and knew exactly what you're going to do, when you're going to do it. Their route book was uh, approved by the party on January 23rd, and that's the actual day that they left the city. From January 23rd to January 27th, the group uh, of 10 traveled via train and bus. Now, on January 28th, Yuri Yudin uh, decided to return um 
and give give up on the expedition and return to the last uh, inhabited settlement because his sciatica was acting up and he was in enormous pain. So basically, at this point, the group consists of nine members and they are in this abandoned uh, mining settlement, which is the last uh, point of civilization, so to speak. It's all wilderness from there on. February 1st is really when they start the expedition, you know. Uh, They start taking certain things out of their backpacks to lighten the load, you know, preparing for the ascent. And according to the expedition's uh, last journal entry and the evidence found in the area, It seems that they started climbing later than planned and went a little bit off their route as well. But other than this small detour, nothing seems to be out of order. And this was the last expedition journal entry. So at that point, nothing was suspicious. February 1st uh, is where this all starts to go wrong. They make camp on the side of a mountain. They intend to scale the next day. That's as far as they go. From that point, they're going backwards. On the night of February the 1st, something scares these people enough that they have to get out of their tent immediately. They cut the tent open from the inside. Not only do they cut the tent open from the inside, but they run away from it with no boots and no coats. Then everybody out running away with not nearly enough gear and clothes to survive for very long in the climate therein. We're well below zero here. That's insane. But besides that, I mean, the injuries these people have don't make a whole lot of sense. No, not at all. I have to agree. And honestly, I feel like the more you research and the more you look into this case, the crazier it gets. And uh, we'll go through it right now. So the first... Two bodies that were discovered um, were those of Yuri Doroshchenko. He was 21 years old and Yuri Krivgonishchenko. Now, to be honest, these two guys didn't have injuries that were so so extraordinary as to make us think of anything else other than an avalanche, maybe. Or at this point, nothing is out of the ordinary. Uh, They had some minor burns. Yeah, they were not dressed for the weather. That is true. And, you know, sometimes in cases of hypothermia, you have paradoxical undressing where in late late stages of hypothermia, the, the brain tricks the body into like feeling hot. So I guess so that the death is not so horrible, you know, so people take their clothes off. So that can be explained by logical reasoning so far. Well, one of them had like knuckle, his knuckles were bruised as if he has got, had gotten into like a fist fight. And uh, point, point in cases that the official cause for them both was hypothermia, which, you know, so far nothing would tell me that this couldn't have happened like they said, like the authorities said. Okay, I suppose. I mean, I don't understand why we have to have a psychotic undressing if they told us they ran away from the tent without their boots and their coats. I mean, those two, it doesn't really, something doesn't smell right. And no, I can also, I mean, I can see that somebody suffering from frostbite and trying to warm up might burn their hands and feet yes. if they started a fire, but I don't think anybody's going to stick their face in the fire. Maybe the Yeti had like a flashbang in his pocket because <laughs> this is like this is like basic Yeti tent assault tactics: is you throw in the flashbang and reappear inside the tent. That way, you catch them off guard. <laughs> With the third body that was found, though, um, he was a little better closed than the first two, but he also presented signs of like, uh, um, as if he had been involved in a fight, right? He had some abrasions on his face, metacarpophalangeal joints uh, on the right hand were badly bruised. So those are the knuckles, you know, so that's the type of injury you get in a fistfight. Now the fourth body that was found, Zinaida Kolmogorova, and she was 22 years old. She was found, by the way, uh, by a rescue dog. Thank you, doggos. We love you all. Now, um, for Zinaida, her official cause of death was also hypothermia. But it says uh, in the report, hypothermia due to violent accident. Unlike the other first three bodies that we discussed, you know. So now it's getting a little bit weirder because it's like, I mean, generally accidents don't cause hypothermia, no matter what kind of violent 
You know what I mean? With each one of these, this gets less and less plausible. You know, there's uh, the story gets shot full of holes with every uh, with every new detail. It seems like. What kind of violent accident can cause hypothermia? Basically, it's either hypothermia. Just just write that down. You know, that would make sense without the violent accident. Right. And not only that, but how do the people that were involved in the physical altercation wind up further away from the people who just froze to death? The fifth body that was found was that of Rustem Slobodin. Uh, he also had like a black eye, basically. Again, as if you one would get into a fight and that's like the type of injury you would get. As the, as the snow started to melt in May, uh, a Mansi local and his dog found the den. So, yeah, the den was this hole that was kind of like dug in the snow with a lot of branches on the bottom. As if the last four surviving hikers were trying to like shield themselves from the elements and avoid contact with the snow to keep their bodies warm. So first they're trying to tell us that these people have psychotic episodes because of hypothermia, but at the same time, they are collected and calm enough that they like tried to dig shelter in the snow, which was a pretty good idea, uh, if not for the fact that you know, they fell through the floor of the uh, the place that they decided to dig just because it was over, you know, a uh, an open space underneath the ice that they could not have possibly known about. So, I mean, it's a good idea. You know, they're going to dig shelter out of the snow and keep themselves warm, at least until daylight. So that doesn't sound like something that completely psychotic, irrational people would do. The sixth body that was found was that of Lyudmila Dubinina. She was 20 years old, and um, what was found is that her clothing items, uh, some of them were later tested and had very high levels of radiation. This is just like such a... Uh, why would you even test clothing from alleged avalanche victims? Because that was the official story from the Soviets, so... Yeah, unless you knew it was there, yeah. That's fishy, yeah. Nobody, like, I've never heard of, like, any avalanche accidents or, uh, I don't know, tornadoes or any of the other natural occurring uh, things that could have happened that would cause the investigators to test clothing items for radiation. Our hypothermia victims are not only burning, burning in more ways than <laughs> one. Yeah, it just gets more insane by the second. Her eyeball eyeballs are missing, her tongue is missing, and her stomach is contain like contains like a dark brown matter, which kind of like people agree it's coagulated blood. She had um flail chest, which means numerous broken ribs on both sides of her chest. And each ribs rib was like broken in uh, various places. What's even weirder is like absolutely no damage to the soft tissue of the chest was present. Like you couldn't see anything. Like basically everything looked perfect from the outside. On the inside, she was shattered. Pretty much the doctors at the time compared the extent of the damage to being hit by a car. And the last three bodies were found together, uh, very close to each other, kind of like in a cluster. Alexander Kolevatov and Semyon Zolotaryov were found near each other in a breast-to-back embrace. Nikolai Thibaut-Brignon was positioned 30 centimeters downstream. Semyon is the odd man out in this group. He's 37 years old. Everybody else is in their 20s. All the other hikers uh, were studying engineering. Semyon was the only one studying nuclear physics. Isn't that something? Is, yeah, the, I mean... <laughs> Isn't that fortunate that the people who had high levels of radiation somehow affecting them right before they died, uh, I mean, how fortunate they were that there's a nuclear physicist. Yeah, nearby. like in the Soviet Union back then, if you uh, were having such a good career and if you were an intellectual and, uh, you know, um, you had to be part of the party and at least at least collaborate with the KGB. Semyon was probably there on a mission and the mission was not to spy on his friends. His injuries, missing eyeballs, a massive fracture on the right side of the skull, again, flailed chest, so a lot of broken ribs, and hemorrhaging in the heart cavity. So his injuries were pretty much similar to uh, those of Lyudmila's. And the forensic expert who worked with the investigators said at the time that the wounds are very similar to the type of trauma that results from the shock wave of a bomb. 
Semyon, his remains were exhumed in 2018. The DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of his living relatives. <laughs> no, I'm not I could hear that moment of silence. <laughs> like, you know, like, no, for real. Like, in addition, it turned out that uh, Zolotarev's name was not on the list of those buried at the cemetery where he was, you know, supposed to be, like... like sure. So this guy, I mean, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure he was a good person. I'm pretty sure he fitted well with the group. You know what I mean? Like he liked hiking. He was in hiking groups and stuff. That's not the point. Like I'm not saying he was a bad person or anything because he worked for, for the KGB or collaborated with them. It's just that, uh, you know, we have to just look at the facts and admit this is not a crazy conspiracy theory, especially since historically speaking at the time, one in three people uh, in the USSR were collaborating with the KGB. And people in positions, yeah, yeah. people in university, people that held like uh, good careers and uh, were involved in uh, uh, educational life, university stuff, like most of them were collaborating with the KGB because otherwise they wouldn't have given, like they wouldn't allow you to hold those positions. I wonder if the KGB guy who murdered the real person they put in that hole told him before he shot him in the face, we're going to put you in a grave that doesn't even have your name. I mean, it comes with the territory when you sign up. <laughs> uh, Semyon also had a camera that was not recognized by Yuri Yudin, the one single survivor. Nobody was supposed to see. Exactly. The secret camera was like for, like, you know, for his little mission for the KGB, not to spy on the, the others. Now, the eighth body was that of Alexander Kolevatov. He was 24 years old. His eyebrows were missing. Neck was broken. His skin had like a green grayish color with a tinge of purple. The official cause of death was ruled as hypothermia. But guess what? Uh, we got more radiation, I'm guessing. Yes, very high levels of radiation. The ninth body was that of Nikolai Thibaut-Brignol. He was 23 years old and multiple skull fractures in the temporal bone area, one of which was uh, absolutely immense. The soft tissue on the head and temple was intact. Now, the necropsy report said that the uh, massive skull fracture happened as a result of Nikolai uh, falling and hitting his head on a rock. And I'm like, like no, this make no, makes no sense because such a huge fracture, fracture does not happen if you fall from the height of your own body and with the weight of your own like I mean, yeah, well, and if you fall and hit your head on a rock, you're gonna you're gonna break the skin. You're gonna have a cut. You know, it's uh, it's like a boxer getting punched in the face. You know, you get a cut. Exactly. So this is all insane. But in a nutshell, at the time, the official conclusion for the entire group, right, was that all of them died because of a compelling natural force. And immediately afterwards, the case files were sent to a secret archive. Since then, the investigation was reopened several times, last time in 2018. Then the prosecutors uh, basically went back to where the incident took place in 2019. And then in, two, uh, in 2020, a new investigator took over who fired the old one. I mean, still to this day, the official uh, version that the Russian government is putting out there is like uh, avalanche slash maybe tornado, which never heard of a tornado that makes my clothes radioactive, but oh, whatever. Yeah, and I'll give them compelling force. I don't think uh, I don't think it was entirely natural. Let's talk about what a photo flash bomb is. A photo bomb is not really a bomb. This is a photography device, just like the flash on your camera uh, or on your phone but one dropped from an airplane to illuminate a big area. We're talking about a radius of miles to take uh, aerial photos at night. This adds up and it checks a lot of boxes in terms of these injuries, uh, particularly the burns and what looks like concussion damage or impact damage without soft tissue damage that uh, some of these people suffered. Let's go through all of the details on how this could be the explanation of what this was all caused by, what happened to these people. A 
photo flash bomb has been in use by the U.S. military since there's examples from World War II. And for sure it was popular in Korea. Since we're 60 years on and most of the people that might have an interest in this are dead now. We've got declassified records to look through that you can start to piece together. The answer to whether there was such an airplane around here at this time, probably yes. So there's a declassified report from the CIA from June of 1959. Again, we're six months after these people set out for this hiking trip that outlines how the CIA was studying photographs that had previously been taken of areas around a nuclear power plant just a short distance in airplane terms south of where these hikers were. The Kishtim nuclear power plant was the Soviet's first plutonium enrichment facility. So obviously the U.S. military and the CIA have a recurring interest in spying on what's going on at Kishtim. Could a photobomb be the reason for all of this? Um, a photo flash bomb is made of magnesium, which it's a powder that burns at like 3000 degrees and it sets off a white hot light it's good for photography, but if you're caught in the blast, you're probably going to be immediately burned on any part of your body that's exposed. Uh, not fatally, but burned nonetheless. Uh, you're going to be blinded for sure because this is like looking directly into a welding torch. If you don't have your eyes covered, you're going to be blinded. And uh, if you were close enough to the blast that uh, it went off near where you were physically, you could probably be deaf as well, just from the, the bang. This could explain the burnt eyebrows, like the yeah. missing eyebrows, right? Like eyebrows are hair, so like... It explains, I mean, you could explain a lot of things with this. Not only that, but, you know, there's some, <laughs> there seems to be some desire on the part of the Soviet investigators to suggest these people got in a fight. Well, if they were blinded when they were awoken by a bang going off and they were all in the same tent, that explains why they would run out of their tent or even cut their way out of their tent to get away because they would think the tent's on fire. I got to get out of here, but I can't see. So I'm going to get out of here any way I can, even if I got to cut a hole in the tent to get out. And I don't need to take anything with me because it's on fire. I got to get out of here. You can just step on somebody and crush their ribs. If you jump up in the tent, yell, I'm on fire, I got to get out, and step randomly because you can't see and just step on somebody's chest, then yeah, you break their ribs and you cause internal bleeding and uh, internal organ damage. Or if you step on their head, you crack their skull and you leave them with a cracked skull, but no broken skin on the outside of the fracture. That makes a lot of sense to me. The flash bomb theory explains pretty much of everything and all the weirdness. You know, all these other theories about what might have caused this or what might have caused that. You got to start with what caused them all to wake up and scatter out of that tent without the gear they needed to survive um, in the middle of the night. And I think this is the most plausible one. And without any other information, it's it's a theory. Uh, on its own, uh, like a Yeti or the werewolf is, well, a, I was a, is I... a theory on its own. But let's consider um, what else is going on uh, to say that this is not only possible, but... Plausible and likely, yeah. Yes, but likely. As I mentioned before, the Soviet's first uh, plutonium enrichment facility is about 250 miles to the south of where these hikers were. Both the U.S. Air Force and the CIA were absolutely obsessed with that particular nuclear plant. And ironically, it was what they didn't know that they were missing uh, in terms of you know, what the status of this facility was, and um, so all of their presumptions about ICBM sites and manufacturing and how many bombs there were were completely misguided because uh, through a string of incidents prior to these hikers going missing, the Russians had contaminated the entire site. 
They improperly stored their waste material, and it got too hot underground and leaked out of its uh, containment tank. And they had uh, contaminated all of the nearby rivers uh, by using river water to cool the reactor, but you know, not monitoring the radiation level in the water and just sending the wastewater downriver. Um, and so they Did had to they evacuate. Really? Yeah, they had to evacuate all of the local tribes before this happened. Uh, about 10,000 people were evacuated from the immediate vicinity because, yeah, it was all contaminated. 70 people roughly were hospitalized with severe radiation sickness. They tried to hide that from the hospital employees where the people were put in hospitals, but, you know, the hospital workers would gather around the top of the hospital and look at them through the window. So they knew something was off and something was being hidden. This makes complete sense because I've read in some of my research that birds and animals were also found dead at the time. But one of the prevailing theories was that the hikers kind of like ran into some type of Soviet uh, uh, secret nu nuclear weapons testing. Yeah, and like I said, the, the Soviets successfully, for the most part, there was one European newspaper that kind of published a rumor about some sort of accident at a Soviet uh, nuclear facility, but it was pretty vague and short on details. And uh, so they successfully hid this from the world for, you know, at least, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years. There's gaps in, you know, the CIA and the U.S. military declassify things, but not really. They declassify, like pieces, they declassify yeah. re redacted things, and you still have to uh, connect some dots. So, but in any case, they successfully hid this from the entire world for quite a while. I mean, by the numbers, this was worse than Chernobyl. They had to empty a town. They had to move 10,000 people. They had to keep 70 people that were going to die hidden in a hospital until they died. And it was uh, it was a mess, but they did it. And uh, from a report from the uh, Los Alamos uh, nuclear lab in the U.S. that went through all of the information about this in the 70s, the way they did it was probably by accident. It wasn't because the Soviets did a particularly good job of covering this up. It was just because there was no one big boom like there was at Chernobyl that set it all off. It was just a string of mistakes, one after another, that gradually contaminated everything in a wide area. And this also explains why we have a guy with this camping trip that has a camera nobody's allowed to see, who's twice their age, who's a nuclear physicist, and by any other measurement you might want to apply to him is probably a KGB guy. So that explains his presence in all of this is, you know, he was sent yeah, to so... he was sent to take readings and take pictures and report back. So pretty much to like document the effects of the uh the radioactive area after the, the accidents at the plant. Right. And it's difficult to, you know, to determine what the American theory was at any given time. I mean, it's not only is all this old and all the people on the American side are dead as well, but, you know, there's the fact that they didn't tell the pilots flying these airplanes what they were looking for all the time because the pilots weren't supposed to know either. That was the idea. You get shot down, you don't have to worry about what the pilot's going to tell them if the pilot doesn't know. So there's also the fact that the CIA and the U.S. Air Force don't get along very well. They have different ideas about what they're supposed to be doing when sneaking around Soviet airspace. The Air Force Command's idea is they're supposed to start World War III, whereas the CIA's idea is, no, 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 we're not military, we're just looking. So they have you know, different motivations there as well. But I think one thing that stands out that is not talked about very much 
is the scale of the U.S.'s violations of Soviet airspace on an almost daily basis for decades. This is not a small operation. You know, if you were to watch movies and, uh, you know, read about Gary Powers, who got shot down in a U-2 and then exchanged for another Soviet spy, and, you know, maybe read about the U-2 that got shot down over Cuba and read the newspaper articles, you might come to the conclusion over a period of years that there was, I don't know, a handful of guys that got shot down trying to snoop on the Russians, and that was it. No big deal. Well, that's not the case. The U.S. had 33 B-47 bomber wings. A wing has four squadrons, each of which is about 10 airplanes. So, that's 40 airplanes per wing times 33. In addition to that, another five recon B-47 wings, each having three squadrons. So that's another 150. So by all indication, in just one airplane, the U.S. Air Force had north of 1,300 long-range bombers able to fly over the Soviet Union and just carry a nuclear bomb every day in case somebody called you and told you to drop it or drop flash bombs and take pictures at night, like what we're talking about here. You know, times 150 on those versus 1,000 other bombers. This was every other day, and that's just one airplane. A B-36 is pretty similar to a B-47, except it's from World War II and Korea era. It does the exact same things. It can also be rigged for recon to drop photo flash bombs. And there were plenty of B-36s at the same time. And that doesn't even get into purpose-built spy planes like our B-57s and U-2s and SR-71s that came along after these. So... The thing that anybody can take away looking at these numbers, the U.S. was the aggressor. The reason why World War III didn't start and the reason why the Soviets don't really want to talk much about what happened to these hikers, if this is what happened to them, is because there were so many airplanes flying around the Soviet Union every day that belonged to the U.S. that the Soviets didn't have enough missiles to shoot at all of them. So they couldn't have shot them all down if they wanted to. Uh, and this is, I mean, uh, as far as anybody in the U.S. knows, the only time a Russian falling from the sky ever saw an American was in a movie with like Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen. But no, it was all the time. And there was an accounting done, actually, of how many planes were shot down after the Cold War was over, and 200 pilot and crew members of U.S. aircraft were killed flying over Soviet airspace during the Cold War. I mean, can you imagine how unhinged the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal would be if there were 200 Russian airplanes shot down over the U.S. in, you know, a decade or two? As far as I know, there was never a Russian shot down over the U.S. If there was, it was one or two. Certainly not 200. But this was what was going on at the time. And the answer to the consideration in all this of, was there an airplane like the one we're talking about around there at that time? Absolutely there was. There was one there the day before, and then there was one there the day after, too, because they were flying them every other day. I actually think there might have been more than one on that particular day. That's certainly to possible. To be honest, yes. I mean, statistically speaking, from the numbers you just, uh, you know, like the numbers and the data you shared, it seems like pretty much the air traffic at that point over the Urals was like really busy. It was like a <laughs> yeah, busy it's, highway. It's funny you mentioned this you know? because two interviews that I read through preparing for this episode. One of the RB-57 pilots, that was one of the purpose-built spy planes, um, he mentioned while flying, uh, that while flying over the Soviet Union, higher than any of the Soviet fighter planes could shoot. So he had no fear of being shot down because he was higher than they could shoot. But he said that there were so many MiGs 
you know, MiG fighters in the air below him that they grained up the pictures he was taking. (laughs) They they were blocking, you know, it's like, hey, buddy, I'm trying to get a picture of your nuclear power plant over here, but there's so many fighter planes over it that I can't see. Would you get out of the way? So that's like the kind of like Cold War photobombing. Aviation type of stuff. Yeah, it was so busy, like there were so many planes in the air that he could not take a photo because the planes were obscuring exactly the ground. I mean, I mean, like, you, know, like- you can you can explain so many things. It just makes so much sense. You know, when you start considering all this, it's like, okay, why would the Air Force fly a bomber with? Uh, really loud bombs that don't hurt anything over this place at night. Uh, well, it's because there was another interview that said that when they flew in the daytime, it was so easy to see them just, you know, look up and there they are. That, um, you know, flying in the daytime was a problem. They used to fly two airplanes during the daytime. And the only purpose of the second airplane was to follow the first one. And if they had, you know, frozen contrails coming out of the back of the jet engines, then they would turn around and go back because that would make it make them too easy to see. So that's obviously not very efficient. You're flying two airplanes with one just watching the weather to tell the other one, eh, wait, we're not going today. Turn around and go back. Well, if you fly at night, that solves all those problems. So flying at night is preferable for a lot of reasons, and uh, that's why they did it in Korea. I mean, they they love the idea of flying over North Korea during the Korean War at night and just dropping flash bombs everywhere they wanted to take pictures. So they've been doing this for a long time, before 1959. Yeah, and I'm thinking like also flying at night. Like, I don't know a lot about, about aviation and planes and stuff, but... If you're a reconnaissance plane, it seems like you want to be more stealth. It's like you want to be stealthier. You want to fly at night so that you're not seen. Because by the time you drop the flash bomb, that will be very obvious to everybody because it's a big, bright, you know, glowing, uh, you know, sphere in the sky. So they're going to see the flash bomb. But by that time, your position in the air has changed so they can't shoot you down, right? Because they don't know exactly, they can't determine where you are by that point. So I guess that would be another reason, maybe. In this case, I think it's just a matter of, you know, I think it's worth mentioning where this place is. You can Google the Outlaw Pass on Google Maps and the memorial will come up and show you. I mean, this is, on the ground, this is in the middle of nowhere. You know, Moscow is far. Yeah, but in the air, it's like, <laughs> it's in busy. In the air, it's busy. It's yeah. very, in, very in busy. The, air. the airspace is like really, really, yeah, really in the busy. Air, it's it's busy. like a... Um, but on the ground, it's, <laughs> it's not near anything. So would anybody except the Yeti see the flash bomb that you dropped? <laughs> probably not. I mean... Probably, probably not. not. Yeah, you're Particularly right. Particularly if... I mean, like I said, we don't know who knew what and when about the uh, the incidents that caused the contamination from the Soviet uh, reactor facility at Kishin. But let's presume that they did know by early 1959 that there was something wrong at Kishin and the Soviets had evacuated it. Well, that doesn't disprove anything here. If anything, it gives... A little more weight to it. More credibility. Hey, I can fly over there all day long and drop all the flash bombs I want because nobody's there. They evacuated it. So. Yeah. And I mean, the people that were there at the time, I guess, like the few, the locals that were still behind or whatever, because that's what I was going to point out next. I've read about reports of like growing, uh, glowing bright orange orbs in the sky. Uh, From reports from the local people. And this description really fits what the flash bomb looks like. Yes, absolutely. Like to a T. Yes. So this theory, I think at this point, considering all the other theories, I, I think this is pretty much closer to a fact than a I theory. Like I the really, flash I really have a hard I mean, time talking myself out of it. I mean, after everything else, I mean, even... So magnesium is gray. It looks like aluminum uh, and uh, it leaves a gray dust. So, I mean, if you were exposed to a magnesium flash, then if you inhale it, you're going to be coughing up gray foam, like what was on the guy's face. Mm -hmm. You're going to, I mean, one of the other bodies had what, like a grayish tint to their, to their burned face or burned skin. I mean, it's, it all checks out. Yeah. Yeah. Like a 
And also the injuries, you know, like uh, most of the like internal injuries on the bodies looked okay on the outside kind of maybe except little bruises and little burns and stuff like that that can be explained but everything kind of makes sense because if you are caught i guess in the radius blast of such a flash bomb if it, even if it's not like a quote-unquote real bomb it's still strong enough to cause some kind of like you know shock wave if if it's dropped right on top of you mm-hmm. right from a shorter distance than the plane because those planes are flying at night maybe they didn't realize how close they are to the ground, you know, like that could be, I mean, that could be the reason why they were dropping the flash bombs. Then we don't, uh, there's no reason to presume that they cared about pictures of the mountain, but you got to consider this is 1959. There's no GPS. Um, there's not even good radio navigation for these airplanes to use. The maps they have of the Soviet terrain are probably not very good because it's 1959. So absent radio navigation and GPS, if you're flying an airplane at night and you got to get from here to there, um, the way you're going to do that is you've got to look for landmarks on the ground and measure the distance between landmarks as you pass them so that you can kind of calculate the time you think it's going to take you to get from landmark to landmark to landmark so okay that's great you can do that in the daytime but at night it's dark how you gonna see well um and yes in this case you could drop a flash bomb every so often we need to make sure that we're still following the mountains okay i see the mountains we're good okay fine let's drop a flash bomb where we think the end of the mountain range is going to be so that we can find the river that brings us on down to the power plant slash nuclear weapons plant uh, from here. Well, it just so happens that the hikers were camped out at the end of the mountains near where the river started, which would have carried the airplane on down to the nuclear reactor. So, I mean, if they were using flash bombs to navigate by looking for rivers and mountains uh, in the middle of the night, then yeah, it makes it, it checks out. Everything else was perfect, but just the time yeah. was missing. So, like, no. And I mean, like, if you've been laying like, outside for two months at that point, yeah, you can. Animals are going to do that. So, particularly, exactly. particularly in, the winter, in the wintertime when animals are hungry, sure, absolutely, they're going to do that. But I would say other elements like, okay, radioactive clothing, clothing that pretty much sustains the uh, nuclear plant, uh, uh, you know, yeah. right? The reason why, one of the reasons why the American planes might have been in the area, right? In the middle of the right. Cold War. So they're there to investigate that or pretty much to just take a look at that I mean, plant either, and yeah, see either what way. they're doing. It doesn't matter. I mean, they're going to they want to see it either way. If it's not evacuated because of all of these mistakes then they're there looking for like missile launch pads or factories that make exactly or any you know anything related so they're going to be there either way that's exactly you're there to spy on the other country's nation's capabilities uh, yeah so you demonstrated over a period of years that you don't care about their radar blips or their fighter planes at all. You're going <laughs> to fly over there anyway. And I mean, on that topic, I, mean, I picked out a few quotes here. I mean, and I don't think most people in America, you know, that look back on World War II forward history of the 20th century with kind of rose-colored glasses, I don't think they appreciate the absolute psychopaths that were in charge of the U.S. Air Force at that time. I mean, Dr. Strangelove was not a joke. Dr. Strangelove was a documentary. The general in charge of the Strategic Air Command, uh, his name is Curtis LeMay, and this is your real-life General Jack D. Ripper. A quote I found from him during a panel that he sat on with some of his pilots. He mentioned to the pilot that maybe if we do this right, we'll get World War III started. And the pilot who provided this quote said, well, you know, I thought he was joking. They happened to meet each other again after they were both retired many years later. And the pilot, you know, talked to LeMay again and brought it up again. And he said LeMay's response all those years later was, well, we'd have been a lot better off if we'd have got World War III started back in those days. So that's really what he thought. And 
I mean, this wasn't the only instance of this. Um, another quote I found to confirm that this guy really thought his job was to start World War III with nuclear weapons as fast as possible. Everybody in America is familiar with the U-2. That was the, the high-altitude spy plane that could not shoot at anything or drop any bombs, photo flash or otherwise. It was just a camera carrying airplane. One got shot down over Cuba, and one got shot down uh, after passing over the Kishtim power plant uh, and reactor, as I mentioned earlier. That was the most uh, famous incident involving a U-2. So when the U-2 was being designed, LeMay was in a meeting uh, with other Joint Chiefs and you know White House staff, along with uh, engineers from Lockheed Martin who had designed the U-2, and he didn't want it. He wanted nothing to do with this. He didn't like the design, and somebody mentioned to him that, you know, this is not, not everything is about, you know, shooting at people. We're trying to, you know, take some pictures, and this is for recon purposes. And they said that LeMay got up halfway through the meeting, said that if he wanted high-altitude photographs, he'd put cameras in his B-36s, and while I'm on the subject, I'm not interested in an airplane with no wheels and no guns. And stormed out, said, this is a waste of my time. So this is the level of just absolute insane you're dealing with with this guy. And he's not the only one. The other example I found, so notable Air Force hero Jimmy Doolittle, who was responsible for the Tokyo raid after Pearl Harbor that they made the movie about, where they took off with bombers from aircraft carriers for the first time. He was single-handedly responsible for most modern navigation and airplanes that, you know, the basic principles are still in use today. In a committee he was involved in, in 1953, his proposal for how to negotiate air, you know, air incidents, air force related incidents between the Soviet pilots and the U.S. pilots was, let's just give the Russians a two year deadline to come to terms that we hand to them, that we demand of them. And if they fail to accept the terms, we'll just attack them first. That was his reasoning for how to proceed with the Cold War in 1953. So, yeah, these guys were just absolute psychos. And I think what I got out of all this, more than maybe figuring out what happened to Nine Hikers, is it gives you a better, complete picture, I suppose, of the politics of the Cold War on both sides. Because, you know, okay, so we've established that American military was run by psychopaths at this time. But on the Soviet side, they couldn't admit this was going on either. Because let's say you put yourself in Nikita Khrushchev's shoes and you've got American military aircraft like mosquitoes in the air at all hours of the day and night. And you can't shoot them all down even if you wanted to. So if this all gets out on the Soviet side, then they're going to want his head on a plate. Why aren't you fighting back? Why are you letting them do this to us every day? So it wasn't in his best interest for all of this to be found out either. So you have the just absolutely ridiculous situation where a few American psychos at the U.S. Air Force Strategic Air Command are determined to start a war. And the Soviets, who they want to start a war with, are refusing to start it with them. So that's kind of the situation you have to take away from this. And to be honest, I mean, you look back at this time, another thing that jumps out at most people is the, the speech that President Eisenhower gave when he left office, warning everybody in the United States that they needed to rein in the U.S. military or is going to bankrupt us all because they were crazy. And they had no end to their need for money and uh, graft and contracts and all this sort of thing. On the surface, you look at that and you think, well, you know, Eisenhower, buddy, you're responsible for that just as much as they are. I mean, you're president and you were a general in World War II. How do you not have equal culpability in this? But... <laughs> 
You know, if you read through everything that happened over Soviet airspace that nobody knew about, it's hard not to give Eisenhower a bit of a pass because he's in the situation of having to babysit absolute psycho generals on the Air Force side and equally psycho Alan Dulles on the CIA side. And we are all familiar with what he was capable of in Latin America in particular later. So, and Eisenhower's got to babysit the both of them and stop them from arguing with each other. So it's really, you know, that came out in one of the declassified CIA uh, books that I went through for this. The kind of, I guess, the, the takeaway at the end of the day when the smoke cleared was, if nothing else, the spy planes gave Eisenhower the knowledge he needed to go to his psycho general's his psycho CIA guys and his psycho congressmen that all wanted to some degree to have wars today and to say, no, you're wrong. You know, here, here's the pictures. The Soviets don't have a thousand intercontinental ballistic missiles in 1953. That's ridiculous. Here's the pictures. This is all they got. And what they and what they got, they screwed it up. You know, they've already spilt half of what they got, you know, in the woods and had to evacuate. So, you know, I think I hate to admit it, but I got to give Eisenhower a pass to some degree here. Yeah, I was going to say I detect a pattern with like <laughs> Americans thinking other nations might ha have uh, nuclear capabilities and then starting wars or trying to based on that I wrong mean, assessment. No, also, we, what I mean, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have done that twice and surely not in some places insignificant as Iraq. No, that would be stupid. Yeah, that yeah, that would that would never happen, but moving forward I still like what I'm taking from this is that maybe just maybe we should have some uh, women in positions of power like that for some, you know, for a change, because all these people seem unhinged to me. And like, it's a miracle that the world didn't it really is. I you mean, know, with these people in charge. Yes. No, it really is. I mean, I don't know. I mean, how, like, it's really amazing that it didn't. I suppose one theory looking back at the Cuban Missile Crisis was that Khrushchev was kind of the reasonable person um, that cooled it all down back then. And I think that checks out because he's he's definitely the reasonable person in all of this. The only thing he did in all of this to really kind of play his hand for uh, any sort of advantage in uh, embarrassing the U.S. was when they shot down a U-2. And they, I say shot down, that's a, that's a generous way to describe it. They caused the U-2 to crash. When they caused the U-2 to crash, they kind of sat on it for a couple of weeks to let you know the U.S. try to lie about it in several different ways. And then they came back and revealed, oh, by the way, we got the pilot. He's still alive. So that shot all their lies full of holes. And that was really the only time I went out of his way to embarrass somebody over you know one of these flights. And to put that in context, even, I mean, it's before anybody runs off with the notion that the CIA was the reasonable and uh, well-intended adult in the room with a bunch of toddler Air Force generals, the CIA flew that U-2 over the Soviet Union, launching from Pakistan directly over the Kishtim power plant and reactor a grand total of two weeks before they were supposed to meet, Eisenhower and Khrushchev were supposed to meet uh, to talk about dearmament and uh, de-escalation. So really, two weeks before you're supposed to meet and talk about cooling your heels, you go and send a spy plane over their plutonium enrichment reactor. Yeah, that's smart. So don't give the CIA too much credit either. Despite the CIA or the KGB, Russians, Americans and stuff like that, to start off with is like the reports of like glowing bright orange orbs in the sky. Even some people that were working at the military base nearby said the same thing. And those bright orange glowing orbs in the sky were not seen only on that night. They were seen throughout a period of at least two, three weeks around that date, you know, so that's a flashpoint. Probably, yes. Not only that, but the local Mansi tribes reported that treetops in the area were burned. 
Some might say, well, if it was a flash bomb that was dropped on the hikers, why was the tent found in relatively good condition? Well, for one, the entire crime scene was off limits, even for investigators. Uh, for about two weeks initially, only government officials were allowed access. And by government officials, I mean the KGB. This was probably a cleanup operation to hide any traces of flash bombs. That would have been a major issue for Khrushchev if the truth came out. Because what the Russian people hate most is what they would have perceived as a weak leader allowing the enemy to have such an aggressive stance without retaliation. Also, the loss of face on an international level. Secondly, it is likely that the flash bombs didn't fall right on the tent, but very closely, causing the hikers to panic, run out of the tent, cut their way out of the tent while these bombs were falling around, thus getting all the burns and internal injuries we discussed. Oh, and one of the trees where the first two bodies were found near was completely burned on one side, no branches, nothing. Personally, I think where the cleanup team messed up, they assumed that the film in the photo cameras the hikers had on them would be useless anyway after such a long time uh, in the elements and damage from water. And remember, this is 1959, so photo equipment was entirely different then. They left the cameras where they were with the bodies, or maybe they didn't even realize the hikers had cameras on their person, and anyway, the bodies were covered in snow and frozen solid, cameras might have not even been visible. The cleanup crew was focused on gathering and disposing of all the bits and pieces of the flash bombs before the investigators had access to the scene. And the missing eyeballs, missing tongue, these peculiar injuries were found only on the last four bodies discovered two months later than when their colleagues were found. So. As Neil said, it is highly probable that animals did that. A soft tissue like eyeballs and tongues is still softer than other parts of the body, even in freezing temperatures, thus easier for animals to feed on. But guess what the last photos taken by the hikers? Let me guess. Orange balls. Yeah, I mean, they're black and white photos. <laughs> Okay, so brightly colored balls in the air at night. You can literally see bright spheres, right? Like burning spheres. I can tell you this much. I have I have flown an airplane in the dark and something went wrong and I was not sure right away whether I was going to miss the mountain in front of me. I mean, in this case, they're in a bomber, so they're not going to hit the mountain. But if I got to fire off 10 flash bombs to make sure I don't lose sight of the river that I'm supposed to follow, I'm firing them because... You know, you don't want to you don't want to be running out of gas over the Soviet Union in the wintertime where these guys were. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're going to die just like those hikers. If did. not worse, if not worse, because if you're caught alive, then there's another discussion there. But anyway, if, so if you manage to like somehow land or maybe parachute yourself out, I don't know if that's technically feasible. But... You know, it's funny. Yeah. And since you bring that up, you know, the, the article I read about the 200 people that were shot down and not returned to the U.S., there were so many of them. You know, everybody knows the story about Gary Powers being exchanged on the bridge in Berlin for a Soviet spy. And there's yep. a big drama, you know, a lot of drama and all that stuff. Novels were written about the subject. Absolutely. I mean, there was a movie like in 2015 from Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks about it. Oh, but, yeah, I think I've seen Yeah. Yeah. But eventually there were so many that apparently the Soviets just sent them straight to the work camps in the Gulag because there were so many. So the last photos taken by the hikers, one of them is the one that caused the, the most, like the biggest controversy. It's um, Yuri Krivonishchenko's last photos, frame 34, which clearly shows a bright glowing object. That's a flash bomb. Photos from, um, from another hiker shows the tops of the heads of three of his colleagues with a massive light, blinding light on top of them. Well, there you have it. So far, the theories were like psychedelic possession, demons, what kinds of crazy shit that, like, I mean, <laughs> demons, what, like, no, these are silhouettes of like actual, like shapes of planes in the sky and there's another photo of another two photos of like what seems to be like to me at least planes in these yeah. photos so these guys they took these photos my theory like what i think actually happened is that these two hikers were maybe outside relieving themselves whatever these were the ones that were the best clothes for, for the weather so that's why i'm saying 
maybe they're outside the tent they noticed all these bright orbs in the sky and they're like ah that's weird like you know let me get my camera they both got their camera and then these orbs these things starting to get closer and closer and like until eventually one of them got so close that everybody freaked out and that's when like that's when panic ensued and everything else uh you know followed maximum speed on a b-47 strato jet is 527 knots cruising speed 484 knots if somebody sees something like that coming their way they're not going to appreciate how fast it is until it's already on top and also a very important point uh so when the bodies were taken to the morgue the kgb was there and they did not let families or anybody else get close to the area to even look at the bodies and things were done very secretively. The whole investigation was kind of like a cover-up. And, the, you know, and the funny thing is, is their intention with that may have been just to keep them from finding out about all of the radioactive material that they'd spilled. They may not have known anything about the airplane either. I honestly don't think they did because, you know, stuff like that, it's on a need-to-know basis. And like I said, you know, don't give... Americans credit for being uh, much more aware of what go what was going on than these unfortunate Soviet hikers were because look at all the Americans who were convinced of you know UFOs at Roswell when it was no not really it's more likely as a secret it's like a spy plane or you know some failed bomber project that they're working on and it flew once or twice and then they decided that it sucks and they just never flew it again so there's yeah there's americans are we're in the same dark as the average soviet citizen yeah was. and i think this was like the perfect storm because if you think about it the older uh the older uh, uh person in the expedition Semyon, who was like 37 years old and stuff he was KG be for sure or at least collaborating with them but he wasn't there to spy on the other hikers he was there to document the effects of the radiation in the area from the mishandling of like nuclear material at the plant nearby but it just so happened that he was a spy i guess he got killed by other spies in the sky you know this is like the plot of catch 22 come to life and you can't uh I mean, there's some just a ridiculous string of events one after another that don't make any sense. All done by people who just have a comical lack of awareness about what it is they're really doing. So, I mean, you can't, you know, like I said, you can't go by American pilots' accounts of what they were doing either because it's all over the map. This must be mentioned. There's this photo uh, of this photo flash bomb during an air raid in April 1943. You can see it was taken for a, from a plane. So you're looking down, you see the flash bomb and you see another plane also. This is nighttime, right? Yeah. This flash bomb in this photo, which we know is a flash bomb because it's the definition like of a flash yes. bomb. That's the illustration for it. Looks exactly like the notorious frame 34 taken by Yuri Krivonishchenko. So I feel that pretty much the flash bomb theory is what happened it is what it is i mean i don't know if, if any of our listeners have better ideas slide in to our dms you know at dubious pod insta facebook twitter but like pretty much that's what we think happened yeah there's also a movie this is uh there was a movie in 2013 about this incident it was directed by rennie harlan who uh ironically so you probably haven't seen this you didn't grow up in the u.s rennie harlan directed a movie with Sylvester Stallone about some sort of espionage on top of a mountain called Cliffhanger. Like, that's ironic to say the least. And uh, also Exorcist the Beginning was one of his, which people say is bad, but Stellan Skarsgård is the man. Exorcist the Beginning is good. Don't believe everything you read. The writer of this particular movie, his name's Vic Wheat, He did a pretty good job. He manages to string the bulk of the prominent conspiracy theories about this incident into one coherent plot. He's got the Yeti theory. He's got the crazy sound frequency theory. He's got the catabatic wind theory, which we didn't get into. 
He's got the military experiment angle. He's got the bomb setting off an avalanche angle. It's And even at the end of it, the native mysticism angle in there. So the movie's called Devil's Pass from 2013. Uh, check it out. Probably you haven't heard of it. It wasn't that big of a deal when it came out, but it's uh, pretty good stuff. As far as, you know, kind of low-budget horror movies go, I like it. So it's worth watching. And Vic, write more movies. So you did a pretty good job with this one. So hopefully you stick with it. I think that's it. That's what we got for episode number one. Yeah, and uh, don't forget to check out some of the materials and photos we're going to drop on our socials at DubiousPod. That's our handle across Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. Also head to DubiousPod.com and sign up. You can subscribe to our bonus episodes, also see the comments this episode, and ones just like it in the future. Positive reviews help us as well. Please leave us a positive review wherever you listen to us. And we'll see you on the next one. Thanks. Bye.